The award-winning film Black Klansman is based on the life of Ron Stallworth as he infiltrates the Ku Klux Klan posing as a white person on the phone. His adventures actually got him an apology from the Grand Wizard, David Duke, for the delay in his membership into the Klan. This, of course, was all part of his undercover work as a police officer. The story would go on to become an Academy Award-winning film, nominated for six Oscars and winning for Best Adapted Screenplay. But what Ron Stallworth learned in his undercover work was even more disturbing. This is Loki Mulholland, and it's time to get uncomfortable. Today, as usual, I'm joined by my co-host, freedom writer and civil rights activist, Levon Brown. Levon, how's it going? Good, Loki. How are you doing? Doing great. Doing great. We've, uh, Levon, we've got a cool one here today. We've got the, the Black Klansman himself with us, Mr. Stallworth. How are you? <laughs> I'm fine, sir. Thank you both. We're, we're honored to have you with us. And, uh, I'm honored to be here. Now, 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 before we get started, we need to we just to lay something out here. I just want to kind of clear the air a little bit because Levon, you were actually chased down by the Klan, and Mr. Starworth, you were actually an official member of the Klan. So, is this going to be a problem between you two? Not if he wasn't chasing me. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't have my uh, lighted cross in my hand, so he's good. I'm all right, good. All right. All right. <laughs> <laughs> well. Real, real brief, for those, those who haven't watched the movie or, or read your book, can you give us kind of the cliff note versions of, of the story, just in a nutshell? Well, I answered an ad in the classified section of the uh, local newspaper in Colorado Springs. The ad said, Ku Klux Klan for information, and then there was a P.O. box. So I wrote a letter to the P.O. box, pretending to be a fellow white supremacist who wanted to preserve the white race, uh, the purity of the white race, and a week later, I got a phone call from the chapter president in Colorado Springs um, who asked me uh, why I wanted to join. So I laid all the uh, racial hatred BS uh, that uh, you hear them uh, spouting on him. And uh, he said, you're just the kind of guy we're looking for. When can we meet? And that's when I went, oh, shit. And my investigation... <laughs> My investigation was officially off and running at that point, and it lasted for about seven and a half months total. Yeah, this is, yeah so they, they sight unseen, they, uh, they, they recruited you. Basically, that uh, if they're the uh, superior master race, that shows you uh, just how fallible they are. <laughs> so... So my understanding is that you were actually also the, the first black officer to work for the Colorado Springs Police Department. No, I was the first black detective. First black detective. Okay. okay. Which is a separate unit from the actual police department then? No, the detective division is part of the police department. Division. Okay. Yeah. But I was the first black put into the detective division. Okay. So what was that experience like? To... Well, when you're the first black anything, um, there's a little pressure on you. You have to perform. You have to uh, be above the phrase, so to speak. You cannot have, uh, you cannot afford to have any, uh, any fall downs on the job, so to speak. Uh, you have to be on top of your game because if there is the slightest uh, fallacy on your part, uh, you may not, uh, you are not setting a path for the next person to come along and succeed. So you have to be above uh, above board in every in every way, and uh, if any pressure was on me, that was about it. 
I knew I was capable of doing the job. I didn't worry about that. Uh, it was just a matter of performing once I got in the job. <clears throat> did they, did you get the feeling that they were, uh, when you first went in, that they were waiting on you to fail? No, on the contrary. Um, I had established myself within the department. Um, I had been working on the, in the department for over four years at that point okay. and had established myself with the rank and file. There were two people that would have liked to see, have seen me fail, and that is the lieutenant and the sergeant that I reference in my book as a Lieutenant uh, Art and Sergeant Jim. They would have loved to have seen me fail, but uh, all of their uh, desires uh, didn't come to pass. Okay. Okay. So prior to your investigation of the Klan, your, your first assignment is to go undercover um, investigating, actually, uh, a friend of my mother's. Um, and, and Levon, I think you knew him as well, but Kwame Torre, uh, formerly known as Stokely Carmichael. Correct. Correct. And, and why, why did the police send you in to investigate him? What was, what was the concern? He was given a speech at a local black nightclub. Um, None of the white officers, well, they could have gone, but they would have stood out. And uh, they wanted someone uh, that mixed, mixed in with the crowd, basically, and there I was. Um, I was still a uniformed cop at the time, but they knew that I wanted to do undercover work. So they came to me and gave me this assignment. And it was relatively simple. Go undercover into this bar, uh, fit in, and uh, basically monitor the speech he was going to give and see what threat, if any, it posed to the department. And uh, I was to come back and write a report on my, uh, my opinion of that. And uh, that was the nature of it. But I was also told if you can buy any drugs or anything from anybody and make a case, feel free to do so. They gave me uh, uh, city government funds in order to accomplish that, which I didn't, by the way. But um, I was concerned about one and one thing only, and that was whether I could have an alcoholic drink while on duty. So they ah. told me yes. They told me yes, and uh, <laughs> I did have one drink. Why do they want you to investigate Kwame Torre? What was the, what was the concern? Because I guess you were saying before that there was this aspect of if they said anything, that might be detrimental for the police. Yeah, anybody who's ever seen uh, video footage of him during that time period he was a very dynamic speaker, very powerful speaker. Uh, he could move an audience uh, like nobody's business with his words. And uh, they were concerned that he was gonna give this fiery bombastic speech, which was his signature. And that uh, quote unquote, the good black citizens of Colorado Springs were going to become inflamed and wanna carry out some, uh, some evil intent. So I was sent in there to monitor his speech and see where he was going, what the audience reaction was, and uh, determine whether or not they in fact uh, wanted to act on his words so that the department could chart a path forward in uh, responding. Did you know whether or not you were the only undercover officer there? Oh yeah, I knew that. You were? Okay. Yeah, there were no other black undercover cops in Colorado Springs. So the FBI or anybody wouldn't have been there as well then? There were no black FBI agents. Okay. Oh. 
you have to understand in that time period, there were uh, uh, three black undercover cops in the entire state of Colorado. One was DEA, one was in Denver, and then there was me. Mm. Okay. So and this is this is the um, mid 1970s, right? When this happened with Stokely, it was uh, right around April of 1975. Mm. Okay. So in, in this sort of atmosphere, this wasn't you know necessarily uncommon. I mean, they were. Uh, police departments all over the country were doing this sort of thing. Oh yeah, they're still doing it today too, by the way. Right. So the concern is becomes this, you know, creating some sort of, you know, black uprising then. Uh, yeah, that's one way of putting it. They were expecting violence on the part of uh, the audience reaction to Stokely's words. And uh, if there was going to be violence, and you got to keep in mind, this was 1975. This was barely uh, five or six years after the uh, major cities in America were set on fire due to the killings of Martin Luther King and uh, Bobby Kennedy. And uh, they were concerned that something might might happen that would ignite uh, this type of passion again. Did they have other investigations of other of other organizations that necessarily, you know, that weren't black? No. There were no organizational uh, investigations of uh, the far left, and nobody at that time dealt with uh, anything known as the far right. So no, there were no such investigations in place. Well, what, so why focus on Stokely? Because Stokely could ignite a crowd to go out and burn stuff. He had the ability to ignite people's passions and basically prompt them to take action. And they were concerned about that. The department would have been remiss in its job if it hadn't monitored that speech. Um, and since they had no one available uh, to do it, Black, they came to me, who was a uniformed cop at the time, and gave me the opportunity to do an undercover assignment. I had no qualms about going undercover within the Black community. Um, at that time, heroin was running rampant within the Black community, um, and there was a lot of uh, drug overdoses taking place. I had no problems going undercover within my own uh, people and bringing these fools to, uh, to justice. Uh, people were dying. And Stokely just happened to be the first assignment that I was given for the opportunity to prove myself. Mm. But Stokely was not into drugs. We're not talking drugs. We're talking an intelligence investigation of the possibility of uh, violence based on his rhetoric. Oh, I see. Okay. Drugs had nothing to do with it. Right. But the people that were in the club monitoring Stokely were into drugs. A lot of them were into drugs. That's why they told me if I could make an undercover drug buy, feel free to do so. So then with the investigation of the Klan, uh, but now you have, but that was on your own, your own accord, because you see this ad, this is not something that the, that, that the chiefs or whatever, your, 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 your office, commanding officers would have said, hey, we want you to go check out this far right group known as the Klan. No, I initiated that because I was an intelligence detective at the time. And as an intelligence detective, my job was to monitor any subversive activity within the city that uh, could pose a threat to the city. The Ku Klux Klan is a domestic terrorist organization. When I saw the ad, it was automatic. I made a phone call, not knowing where it was going to go or having any expectation. Um, and when... Uh, 
And the guy, uh, the, clan, the clan chapter president called and asked, uh, why do you want to join? That's when things went in motion. But now the, 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 uh, the clan at that time was not known as a terrorist organization, was it? All clans throughout history have been terrorist organizations. No, that, that's, and that's what you think of them. That's what I think of them. But the, you're telling me that the police department in, uh, in your town felt that way? The police department is concerned about, was, we were concerned about subversive uh, activity entering our city. The Ku Klux Klan, dating back to its founding, has been a d domestic terrorist organization. One and one equals two. I understand that. I agree with you. I'm, I'm saying that uh, up until recently, the Klan was not known as a subversive organization on a, on the whole. The FBI, for instance, did not consider it a terrorist organization. We were a city police department. We didn't give a damn what the FBI thought. The Klan was a domestic terrorist organization. It always has been, always will be, and we responded accordingly. Okay. My work has taken me to a lot of places, and I've been fortunate to meet some incredible people. But when I came to Selma and met Joanne Blackman Bland, I knew I was in the presence of greatness. Joanne was 11 years old when she was attacked on the Edmund Pettus Bridge on Bloody Sunday in 1965. She wasn't old enough to vote, but understood its importance enough to be there. After Selma is an in-depth look at how our right to vote has eroded since the signing of the 1965 Voting Rights Act, the fight for the right to vote continues. Get informed. You can find After Selma on Amazon Prime or visit LokiMulholland.com to purchase a copy for your collection. And, and this was the first chapter that they opened up in Colorado Springs? Let me put it this way. From the time I uh, lived in Colorado Springs, which was 1972, this was the first time uh, any activity of the Klan was, uh, was known. Mm. What went on before my arrival in the city, I couldn't say. Oh, okay. Okay. So... What, what, did you, what did you learn about the Klan's recruiting practices? Well, that newspaper ad was their recruiting practice. And then just a phone call and, hey, you're in. Well, they were putting ads in the uh, local papers. They were doing it in Denver, too, putting ads in the classified section of the Denver newspaper, who uh, Close Klan for information, and then they'd give the P.O. box or uh, whatever of the uh, local Klan chapter in the Denver area. So this was a tactic of, it, of theirs at that time. And how successful were they at it in, the, in, that, in that region? Well, they got a crazy black guy to attempt to join. <laughs> uh, I couldn't tell you what the numbers were. Uh, wasn't interested in how that. All I was concerned about was that they extended the invitation to take it further, and uh, I ran with it. Now, running with it, obviously, you couldn't show up in person. Clearly, that wasn't, this is, you know. Why not? For a clan meeting? Yeah, why not? Oh, I would have loved to see that. <laughs> <laughs> no, I couldn't. I couldn't go to a meeting. That's when. Uh, that's when I had to put a plan of action, uh, move a plan of action forward, and my plan was simply to get a white officer who I knew, an undercover cop who worked narcotics. Uh, he was about my height, my weight, and when I had the phone call with the Clam chapter president. He asked me what I look like for our meeting. And I described this undercover white officer and told him how he would be dressed. I knew how he generally came to work. And I told him how he'd be dressed. 
and uh, that that's how he would be able to recognize Ron Stallworth. And uh, that's what we did. Dang. You were born in Chicago. You, you moved to El Paso um, and then to uh, Colorado Springs. I moved to El Paso when I was four years old. Yeah. 1957. And, and I moved to Colorado Springs in 1972 when I was 19. I graduated from high school in 1971. Mm -hmm. A year later, um, my family moved to Colorado Springs. I joined the police department at the age of 19 as a, uh, what was called a police cadet. It was a civilian support job. We wore uniforms. We were basically officers in training, but we did civilian uh, support jobs around the department. And we were sent to the police academy during that time period. Uh, and when you turn 21, which was the legal age for carrying a weapon, when you turn 21, you were then put on your field training program. That lasted anywhere from four to six months. And uh, you were a full-fledged officer at that point. How, how long were you an officer before you became a, a detective? I was a uniformed officer for one year and two months. And when I became a detective in August of uh, 1975, I was uh, the youngest detective in the history of the Colorado Springs Police Department up to that time. And I believe it still holds. Wow. So did you have to actually, you know, portray yourself as a white person on the phone? Obviously there's the, the typical racial rhetoric that the Klan wanted to hear, but was there any- No, that's a common misconception from uh, the publicity of that movie. Mm -hmm. People think that I got on the phone and pretended to sound white. My only question to that is, how do you sound white? Mm -hmm. Okay. What distinguishes a white voice from a black voice? I know there are some people you can listen to them and say, oh, he's got to be black. Just as there are some Southerners you can hear and you can tell by their voice that they're from the South by their accent. But not everybody from the South has an accent. Not every black man sounds like a quote black man and not every white person sounds white, whatever the hell that means. Mm -hmm. So those people who like to say that I was pretending to be white, the only thing I was pretending was that I was one of them, a white fellow white supremacist. I didn't disguise my voice. You can't do that unless you are a trained uh, mimic. Uh, you don't go around doing that when you're undercover. So I was just being Ron Stallworth, pretending to be a white supremacist on the phone. So how did, so how did you, the, the other um, investigator then, was, was there enough, enough, was enough similarity in your voices that when they, when he showed up, they just passed right off? Or it's like, oh, that's just the phone and phones sound different anyways. If they are the so-called superior master race, uh, they're failing miserably at it because if you heard the real, uh, the, the white officer posing as me, uh, his voice was totally different than mine. Uh, they should have known from the very beginning they were dealing with two different people on the phone. But they, they were not, as I put in my book, the brightest light bulbs in the socket. And as a result, we were able to con them again for about seven and a half months. And during this, you, you guys discover who, you know, some of the recruiting uh, efforts were um, trickling into the military. Yeah, I, uh, I got wind of the fact that uh, I was contacted by some, uh, some people associated with uh, the Army base, Fort Carson, Colorado, and uh, an airman uh, from uh, uh, the local Air Force base. And 
over time, I established the fact that at the North American Air Defense Command, NORAD, which is responsible for protecting North American airspace, a joint venture with Canada, I found out that there were uh, uh, a couple of Klansmen uh, whose assignment, they had top security clearance at NORAD, and their job was to monitor the uh, console, which monitored uh, air traffic in North America. And when I brought that to NORAD's attention, um, it led to a meeting with the deputy commander of NORAD, who was a full bird colonel in the army. And uh, he in turn contacted the Pentagon. The Pentagon, he spoke to some general, I do not know who, spoke to some general and told the general that uh, I had identified Klansmen stationed at NORAD. And that general, whoever he was, gave the order that these two people were to be uh, dismissed from their top security assignment and uh, relocated, quote unquote, to the North Pole. That's what I was told. And then I asked the question, do we have a base at the North Pole? And the response I got was, we have one very close to it. And that's all they would say. So I, if there is a base, I assume it's considered secret or top secret, uh, but by uh, by 5 p.m. that day, those two guys were removed from their assignment and were under transport to, quote, unquote, the North Pole. <laughs> so here we have these, you know, these clans, like you said, you know, top secret clearance and all these sort of things. I mean, in NORAD, what, what does that say about the, the, having the military infiltrated by the Klan? Uh, I was surprised. Quite frankly, the military seemed surprised by it, too. Um, but after, I, after my investigation ended and I did more checking, I found out that there was similar activity at other bases around the country. Uh, Marine Base in uh, Camp uh, Pendleton uh, in California was having Klan activity. A U.S. Naval uh, a ship was having Klan activity on, on, uh, on its uh, deck. Uh, this was a fairly common practice within the U.S. military at that time. Um, no investigations were taking place, but uh, I uncovered it in uh, Colorado Springs. Now, was the Klan the activity that was taking place, was it being done in secret or because they were not bothered, people just kind of... It was being done secret in the sense that they weren't going around openly advertising themselves, but neither were, there, were they hiding uh, they like to brag amongst their little group. Uh, they claim to have burned crosses. I had no record of any crosses being burned uh, during the course of my investigation. In fact, they didn't burn any during my investigation. Um, but they were making all kinds of claims that uh, they were burning crosses and that they were uh, terrorizing blacks uh, in neighborhoods and whatnot by burning crosses on their lawn. We had no proof of that. Uh, they were very open about their activities. Uh, they just thought that they were talking to a fellow white supremacist in me and didn't fear talking to me about it. So with, with jumping back to the military aspect of things, I mean, the, the Klan has a history of being, uh, well, in, in the South in particular, uh, oftentimes the police force was also Klan's members. So this doesn't seem like a big leap to have the parts of the military be involved in the Klan as well. No, it really isn't a big leap. You got to understand, the Ku Klux Klan represents 
a microcosm of the local community. You got good people in the community, you got bad people. The clan is just a microcosm of that, except everybody in the clan can be considered a bad person. Um, so the fact that there may have been clan members associated with the military was not surprising by any stretch of the imagination. It's just that they they got discovered. Yeah. Uh, but they're good and bad. They're good uh, in the community. They're bad in the community. The clan is a microcosm of that. Well, I think also just in light of, in particular, where the uh, the military is now wanting to remove Confederate emblems altogether from the military, rename some of the forts, you know, bases and stuff that were named after you know, Confederate generals and things. Uh, it almost feels like as if this was kind of a, just, I'm just thinking about this, it's just, it's just that it, it created an atmosphere that would foster that sort of attitude or at least allow it to be accepted. You know, That's very true. And before we start worrying about uh, changing the names of um, Confederate uh, bases named after the members of the Confederacy, uh, we need to get rid of that idiot sitting in the White House because he is the one that's fueling a lot of this today. And uh, it's not surprising that we have a rise in uh, uh, white supremacist activity. Uh, he's a mouthpiece for them. Mm -hmm. I refer to him uh, as the uh, unofficial leader of the white supremacy movement in America today. So if we, want to, if we want to remove statues, stone ghosts, if you will, in the South, which is the title of an MSNBC special, if we want to remove those stone ghosts, then we need to remove that idiot sitting in uh, Barack Obama's own chair. Mm. The fact that the, the people like David Duke are endorsing him, I mean, and he doesn't actually speak out against that. He claims he does. Uh, he'll give lip service to that but it's lip service with a wink and a nod and a uh, how Hitler salute, if you will. Um, David Duke, 40, uh, 41 years ago, David Duke, or 42 years ago, David Duke was preaching to me on the phone what Donald Trump is preaching to America and putting into action. Um, when Donald Trump ran for office in 2015, the words that were coming out of his mouth were not surprising to me like a lot of people in this country were shocked that he would say some of the things that he did. It didn't shock me because I had heard it 40 years earlier. David Duke tried to achieve what Trump accomplished three and a half years ago. Trump is just a better con man than David Duke ever was, and that's what happened in 2016. America got conned royally, and we're still living with the effects of his, uh, his con job. It's a little more than that to me, because it's, I mean, I, I, I understand and, I, and I, I hear the anger. I guess what, what, what I, at the same time that Trump was ascending, uh, I was reading a lot of books about the Nazis. And his, a lot of what Trump does, I guess a lot of what the Klan does as well, has a lot, is a lot like what the Nazis did with the press, with the uh, with the uh, uh, demonstrations, with the uh, just how he deals with people, he really doesn't care about human beings. His activity shows that he doesn't care even about the people that support him. Well, that's what the Nazis did. That's how they won. And Trump's, quite frankly, he scares me because the people surrounding him are smart enough to know 
what to do, whereas he's not. He's a figurehead. But there are a lot of people in this government that are no different than what the Nazis were. Trump doesn't scare me. I think he's a joke. I think he's a clown. And uh, I think there's enough people in this country that are starting to recognize that he's a joke and a clown. People have, have understood it from the very beginning. Sad to say, Lindsey Graham, the South Carolina senator, oh, God. identified Trump as a clown. But Lindsey chose to drink the Kool-Aid uh, yeah. in order to keep himself elected. And uh, he's overlooked all that, just as a whole lot of Republicans have overlooked the dirt that Trump is doing. But I don't, I don't fear him. I'm not scared of him. I simply recognize him for what he is. He's not a surprise to me. And he shouldn't be to anyone else in this country. He shouldn't have been in 2016. Um, Trump is a bona fide racial bigot, white supremacist. I agree with he that. Just, uh, he just uh, clouds it over uh, with all of his uh, con job rhetoric. And there's enough fools out there, a lot of them my police colleagues, I might add, uh, as well as members of the military, there's a lot of fools out there that buy into his con job. But he's not fooling anybody. Yeah. I think what concerns me is, is, is when you're saying that the things that we are hearing from him are the same things you heard from David Duke, and yet we have people, like you said, fellow officers, uh, people in the military. Clearly, a lot of people still support this guy. It, what is it that they're really truly supporting at this point? I have a friend that I worked with in Salt Lake uh, City area. Uh, he's still a police officer there. And he put a post out on Facebook recently that said, uh, he asked a fellow officer, white officer, what was it about Trump that uh, made you like him? And the officer's response was, my 401k is doing pretty good because of Trump. That's his reason, hmm. 401k. He's not concerned about anything else except what his 401k says. He's forgetting totally about Trump's version uh, of the uh, rule of law. All he's concerned about is what that 401k is, is uh, uh, printing out. Uh, that's a sad, sad testament to our times, um, that you don't concern yourself with any other aspect of American society except how much money your 401k is making. It's making money because of the economy that Barack Obama left, not anything Trump has done. Um, Trump is, uh, Trump's appeal comes from the uh, white grievance that he's able to generate. White people feel like they've been given a, a bad shake. Where they come up with that, I have no idea. But they feel aggrieved because more people are paying attention to uh, the minority issues in this country as opposed to uh, whether or not whites have a valid argument. Uh, whites have a valid argument, but don't tell me as a white person that your grievance is greater than the history of uh, grievances that me as a black person, uh, my uh, Latina Hispanic wife uh, has and her ancestors have uh, suffered. You have no grievance compared to what we have gone through. And yet people feel, whites feel, that their grievance with America is so much greater and needs to be actualized. And Trump is their, uh, their vessel, their vehicle towards that. Because just like others have done before him, he points to somebody else. And the somebody else he points to is anything that they, 
is black or brown or red or green or whatever. Anybody that is not white. And that's why he doesn't attack racists. He doesn't attack because those are his people. But he doesn't, what, what, what's, what's amazing is he really doesn't care about them either. In my other life, I'm a filmmaker. And one of my more fascinating films I created is the award-winning film titled Black, White, and Us. It's about viewing racism through the lens of transracial adoptions in Utah. Utah? Yeah, Utah. It just so happens to be the transracial adoption capital of the world. So what happens when white families who didn't believe racism existed anymore adopts a black child? Find it on Amazon Prime or visit LokiMalholland.com to purchase a copy for your collection. Trump, Trump concerns himself with Donald Trump and Donald Trump alone. He could care less about America. That's it. He's in, he's in this to gain what he can from the office of the presidency. And however long he's in that office, he's going to milk it for what he can, for what it can do to boost his uh, financial uh, empire. Um, yeah. And what angers me is when my police colleagues around the country swear by Trump, completely uh, ignoring the abuse of uh, the rule of law that uh, he has brought into place. Uh, and as I've told several of them, you have worked con artists in your career. You know a con man when you hear it. And yet you all are ignoring the fact that this guy is a classic con man, except he's doing it on a very, very large scale. Right. How can you do that? How can you not say something and, and not want to take action against that? And, and they all come back to the same thing is that Trump isn't doing anything wrong, that uh, it's the uh, blacks, it's the Hispanics, it's the migrants, uh, the, the Muslims, we have to get them all out of the country and get back to America first. America first simply means a return to white dominance in this country where blacks are submissive, where we have to look the other way, uh, walk with our head down, uh, be polite and never ever look like we want to uh, foment dissension, dissension in this country. That time will never come to pass ever again. We won't allow it. There'll be a, another civil war before it comes to that. Well, it's interesting. It's, it's, but these are fellow, these are police officers. These are people who are in control and they're having these, these conversations. Yes, it is. And that's what's frustrating. It is interesting. It's frustrating. And quite frankly, it angers me. My colleagues are smarter than that. But there are some dumb shit cops in this, in, in this country, and I have worked with some of them, and those that fall into that category are diehard Trump supporters. But keep in mind that uh, the, uh, to them, you know, they opened up the, the armory for them. So you have cops in uh, small towns of 50,000 people or 25,000 people, uh, riding around in uh, armored vehicles and they're dressed to kill and, and all, the, the, he gives them toys and they fall for that. He, money and toys. And that's what they fall for because that's what he gives them. And every time there's a an argument about uh, the demonstrations or about black people or about anything, he just, all he does is gives more toys and more guns and more Trump uniforms. didn't give them toys. Trump didn't give them toys. It started with George Bush. That's right. He started did. With George, it started with George Bush and Obama cut the program off. Um, 
And Trump but opened Trump, it up. Has, Trump has resurrected it. Right. And as a cop, as a former cop, when I was working for the department, quite frankly, I was all for those toys. Good. I now see that it was a mistake. But when you see what's happening on the streets, uh, we were dealing with gangs uh, during my time in Utah. When you see what the gang members had to work with versus what we as cops had to do, hell yeah, I wanted those toys. But police officers, police departments have abused those toys. Um, and that's what needs to be brought in check. Um, but if you give, if you open the, the armory to police officers, hell yeah, they're going to take whatever they can get out of that armory. Why wouldn't they? Yeah. Why wouldn't they? No, no. But that's why they support Trump. No, that's not the only reason. What like I reason? said, a lot of them feel like money. they're making more money towards retirement because of their 401k. Right. They feel like Trump is the second coming of Christ, which is another thing. What the hell is wrong with these dumbass evangelicals that they buy into the fact that Trump's a Christian? They are, they, they're, they're some of the stupidest people in the world. And I'll, I'll go on record and say, I'll walk into a church and say that. They There's no buy. excuse for for That's, people who allegedly believe in God and are God-fearing to think this guy's the second coming of Christ. That's not what they're buying. What they're buying is he puts the judges in place that they want. He supports their issues. He doesn't get in their way. That's what they support, not Trump. Yes, they, they are supporting that, but they're doing it under the guise of being Christians and that Trump is right. supporting their Christian evangelical movement. That Bullshit. He's not supporting any such thing. I agree. Trump has conned them probably, arguably, the most. But they buy into it. Again, some of them think he's the second coming of Christ. What Christ do they believe in? What historical Christ are they talking about that this man can remotely be compared to Christ? Right. Makes right. no damn sense. One of the things, when coming back to this, this whole this whole thing of the Klan, and, and, and you mentioned something about... Um, you know, we're, we're never going to go back to those days. And, you know, if there's going to be another civil war, there's going to be another civil war. It was, it was in South Carolina or North Carolina where three officers were, <laughs> like you said, there's some pretty dumb people out there and some of them happen to be cops. But they left their, their body cameras on and it captured a recording of them talking about how, you know, they can't wait to go out and kill some black people and kill this judge and so forth. I mean, yeah, I heard about that. It, these things get exposed. I mean, imagine what's not getting captured. And and again, you're coming back to this idea that, you know, they, they, they support an individual like Trump, who, as you described, is everything he is saying and stuff today is what you heard from David Duke 40 plus years ago. Yep. So, and I go back uh, in terms of these officers that you mentioned, which again, they're stupid, but I go back to the fact that they represent a microcosm of, of uh, their community. Well, sure. Police departments should be a microcosm of the community that they represent. So the fact that you have these three officers saying the stupid things that they did is not surprising. They're part of the community and what well, they have, serve. Well, you should have officers that that come from the come from the community, but they need to serve and represent everybody, not just well. Let's make sure we kill off the blacks and you know and preserve whites. I mean, but they're a microcosm of the community, and in the community they serve, there are people that actually think that way, and they probably are three of the ones who grew up thinking that way. So they're merely reflecting what they were taught in their upbringing. Again, 
They're a microcosm of the community. It's not a surprise. Nobody should be surprised that we have cops talking that way. They shouldn't, but they do. They do. So when, did that, when does that talk become action? Have we seen that in respect to like a George Floyd and such? I've never seen it, but that doesn't mean it can't one day happen. Uh, George Floyd is a classic example of out of control cops. Uh, there's no excuse for what happened to George Floyd. Um, but heaven help us if it ever does get out of, out of control and they put it into action full blown. There are more, the, the bad cops that we're talking about are probably 1% of, a, of a, a police department, okay? So you take Salt Lake City, the largest uh, municipal police department in Utah. Maybe, uh, I don't know how many officers they have now, but probably 1% probably hit that, that, uh, that metric. And of the ones that hit that metric, there's probably a half percent or 1% of that that are actually the real far extreme, either the left or right, they're the far extreme that probably want to go out and take that type of action. So I guess if I had any good news, it's the fact that it's not widespread. Anybody that says it is, I'll call him a damn liar. That's just no, not true. But what is not spread, what is widespread is the silence that the other policemen have. Oh, I agree with you 100% on that. We have a blue wall of silence. Uh, cops are afraid to, uh, uh, to snitch on other cops. But I will again point out, that is a microcosm of the society at large. People within the community don't like snitching on others within the community. I became a detective because no blacks in the community wanted to snitch on fellow blacks who were selling heroin, even though it was running rampant at the time, you know? So I was recruited to be a narc so I could penetrate that community and bring these fools in. I had no problems doing that. But nobody wanted to snitch on their fellow uh, drug dealers, okay? So again, I point out, it's a microcosm of the society in which the cops serve. In, in the... <laughs> Couple quick things I, th I thought was kind of interesting is um, is you were actually uh, when David Dave, did David Duke actually come to Colorado Springs? Yeah, I was his okay. bodyguard. And you were his bodyguard. Yeah, right. I mean, obviously you weren't there in person as his bodyguard, but no, I stood right beside him and was his bodyguard. I introduced myself to him. You saw it in the movie. That scene actually happened. That oh, really? happened pretty close to what was depicted in the movie. I introduced myself to David Duke that morning when he came into town uh, for publicity uh, blitz. Uh, I got notified by my chief of police that there were death threats against David Duke and the chief said, I don't want anything to happen to this man while he's in my city. I am going to assign a security uh, detail to him. You're it. We have no one else available. I argued as best I could uh, not to do this. The chief said, I don't want anything happening to him in my city. You're it. So I went and met David Duke. I introduced myself without giving him a last name. I simply said, I am a detective with the Colorado Springs Police Department and we have death threats against you. And the chief is assigning me to be your security because he doesn't want anything happening to you while in his city. 
I said, I don't believe in your philosophy or political ideology, but I am a professional. I will do the best of my ability to see that you leave this town alive. Mm. And then I shook hands with him. He gave me the planned handshake. And uh, well, you were I already a member that. at that point, right? So what? You were already a member at that point, right? I was carrying I was carrying a clan membership card in my wallet as I was talking to him, signed by him. <laughs> but I shook hands with him, and uh, from that moment on, I shadowed him for the next roughly uh, six hours before he eventually left town. No, and eventually he did find out that you know a black man made a fool out of him when. Yeah, he found out in uh, on January of 2006 yeah. when the story of what I had done first uh, hit the wires nationally. Uh, a uh, Miami Herald reporter, Black uh, Leonard Sims, contacted him. Uh, he contacted me to ask me if the story was true. I said, absolutely. He then contacted David Duke and asked him if the story was true. David said, no, he's lying. And I told Sims, I said, Ask him if I'm lying, why am I carrying a membership card signed by him and why I have a certificate of membership also signed by him hanging on my wall at my uh, office. And uh, when he pointed that out to Duke, Duke said, well, we didn't do anything legally, illegal, so what's the big deal? And he was right. They had done nothing illegal, but they had carried guns illegally, which I knew of, and if I had wanted to arrest him for misdemeanor uh, uh, carrying of uh, concealed weapons, I could have done so at any time. We were looking for something bigger than a misdemeanor offense, and we ignored it. Right. So he was breaking the law. He and his people were breaking the law, but uh, we chose to ignore it in hopes of getting a felony where we could send all of them to uh, prison for a lengthy time. Unfortunately, that didn't come to pass. And, and you mentioned prison as well. Is that the... Um... But the Klan does actively recruit in prisons as well, not just the military. Yeah, I, paid a visit to, I paid a visit at that time to the Colorado State Penitentiary uh, to talk to the lieutenant in the intelligence division about their recruitment efforts in prison at that time. Uh, it's one of the major recruiting areas that they have. You have these people that are confined, they're locked up. Once you get in prison, if you're white, you immediately become on the... Uh, a member of the white supremacist side, and uh, it's fertile recruitment ground, grounds for the Klan and other uh, white nationalist groups. Mm. Protection. For them, their strength in numbers, they protect, uh, they, they band together just like the blacks do, just like the Hispanics do. It's very tribal in a prison environment. Do they stay members when they come out, do you think? Yes. Yes, they get indoctrinated. Uh, if they weren't indoctrinated before, they become indoctrinated in prison. They become hardcore, and by the time they get out, it's a, it's a lifestyle. Wow. An Ordinary Hero was my first award-winning documentary. It's about the life of my mother, Joan Trumpower Mulholland, and her participation in the civil rights movement. For most of us, our mothers are heroes because they're mothers, and mom is just mom. But when your mother's a civil rights icon, and yet you never really knew it. Things change. Go check out An Ordinary Hero and find out how choosing to do what was right instead of what was easy helped change the world. You can find it on Amazon Prime or visit LokiMulholland.com 
to purchase a copy for your collection. In one of the interviews, you said that uh, David Duke was actually a very nice guy in person, but he is. Uh, and, a, and a pleasant, and I'm quoting here, a pleasant conversationalist. He is. But when the conversation turns to race, there's this, there's this Jekyll and Hyde thing that actually happens with him. Yeah. If you, have, if you have a daughter and your daughter brought home David Duke and you knew nothing about him, you would like him. You would like him. You'd have find a common ground in terms of uh, talking to him and everything else. It's when the conversation turns to race. Dr. Jekyll becomes Mr. Hyde and the monster in him is unleashed. Um, that's the scary thing about David Duke. He's very disarming. He's very disarming. You can sit up there and talk to this man one-on-one -on -one and have a beer with him. And I guarantee you, you will find uh, common ground with him. You would think nothing of him other than he's a very nice, uh, he's a, he, he was a very nice looking guy in his younger days. Uh, he was the type of guy that you would want your daughter to date until he opens his mouth and the subject of race comes up. And that's when you really find out the truth about him. Wow. Mm. What does that say about, in general, about these Klansmen? I mean, it's these wolves in sheep's clothing, I guess, in a sense. Well, it says that they have, a, they have an aspect about them that is disarming. Uh, and unless you're on your game, you can fall for it. Um, it also says that you better hope you have a smart daughter and she's not a fool because she would fall for uh, his, his crap too. Um, that's the danger to uh, David Duke or any, uh, any charismatic uh, extremist. That was the danger of Stokely Carmichael. Stokely was a very, uh, a very attractive man. In fact, in my book, I described my meeting with him uh, after he gave his speech he was standing in a receiving line, and as people walked by, they were shaking his hand, and they were allowed to ask him a question or two. And as I came by, uh, he grabbed my hand, and I said, uh, tell me something, brother. Do you honestly think there's going to be a war between the races, the white and the black race? He pulled me in real close, and as he pulled me in real close to him, he whispered conspiratorially, and he had the brightest white teeth I've ever seen on anyone. And he had... What I have described as a cocoa colored skin, flawless skin. He was a beautiful man, but he pulled me in real close and he said, brother, get yourself ready, prepare yourself, because there's gonna be a war and we're gonna have to kill Whitey. Just as a matter of fact, we're gonna have to kill Whitey. Prepare yourself, because we're gonna have to kill Whitey. Then he pushed me back very gently pumped my hand a couple of times and said, I'll see you later, brother. And I said, same to you and walked off. That was my close encounter with uh, black history. <laughs> and uh, I remember it to this day, the, the appearance of Stokely. He was very uh, disarming in his physical appearance, but uh, put him in front of a microphone in front of a, a rabid audience and Stokely could preach like no one's business and he could incite you to want to do things that you may not have thought of. To me, there seems like there's some, you know, some parallels that you're probably drawing between David Duke and Stokely Carmichael. They both were, by the nature of their times, extremists. One on the right, one on the left. And uh, what I'm saying is when you get an extremist person, there's not much difference in them. 
other than, in this case, skin color. But Stokely had his uh, topic that he was preaching. David Duke had his. And they were both on the extreme ends of the spectrum. Now, I happen to share a lot of what Stokely was saying. In the movie, it's shown uh, during his talk, you see John David Washington as me starting to identify with some of the things Stokely was saying to the point where he raised his fist and gave a black power salute and said right on. That actually happened in real life with me. I found myself agreeing with a lot of what Stokely was saying. First of all, I may have been a cop. I may have been operating in an undercover capacity that night. But before I ever became a police officer, before I ever assumed that undercover role, I was a black man in America. Right. And I, I, when I took my badge off at night and took my gun off at night, I was still a black man in America. So what Stokely was preaching that night resonated with me very strongly. And that's one thing we tend to forget when we talk about uh, police officers, especially black police officers. They are black first, but they happen to have a job to do. And sometimes in that job, they have to compromise their blackness in order to enforce the law and anyone that gets caught up in it. If you're not breaking the law, you don't have to worry. Well, and in, in, in perpetrating a, as a white person who's now a member of the Klan, I mean, talk about you know, giving up your blackness. I mean, how well, hard I was gave, I, never, I never gave up my blackness. All right. I just, I just conned them into believing oh, that. Okay, yeah. Right. But I mean, the compromise you had to make in respects of, of having to, to listen to this, not that you necessarily hadn't heard it before outside of your job, but, I mean, but having to also espouse it in a sense, not, 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 not that you believed it, but they wanted to hear the things to, to make sure that you were one of them. Oh, that was one of the funny parts about the whole investigation. That was the fun part about it, is I would say the things that they wanted to hear, uh, critics criticizing the black community and black leaders. I would say all that crap. And uh, my sergeant, in fact, uh, I described it in my book. It was like a Saturday Night Live skit. My sergeant would be sitting in his office, uh, feet on his desk, listening to me, pretending to be a white supremacist, spouting off hateful, vitriolic uh, references to the black uh, community uh, and all the black leaders and so forth, he'd be listening to this and I'd be sitting there on, uh, on my desk saying all this crap with a smile on my face and he'd be cracking up at me. At one point, he'd be laughing so hard that he fell out of his chair on one knee because I'm pretending to be a white supremacist and these idiots on the phone are buying into my pretense. Uh, at another point, it got so uh, heated that he ran out of the office cracking up laughing because he couldn't take it anymore. And when he walked back in, I'm still spouting off about being a, a white supremacist using their language. He ran back out of the office to recover himself. So it was like a Saturday Night Live skit, but that's what I had to do in order to be convincing. I had to use what I refer to as the, the, the words, the language of hate to these guys on the phone so that they would uh, recognize me as being one of them, sympathetic to their cause. Right. And it worked. As I said, they weren't the brightest light bulbs in the socket. Did, did any of that ever eat at you? No. Undercover work, uh, I used to say this uh, when I was with Spike Lee and John David and all the actors. What I was doing is in an undercover capacity was no different than what they were doing on film, except I was working a real life situation that could have gone sour at any moment. 
Uh, guns could have come out at any moment. Tension was high a couple of times, but it never it never erupted into any any real bad way. Uh, the only thing that was different from what I was doing than what they were doing making a movie is that I didn't have a Spike Lee to yell cut and let's move on to the next scene. I had to carry that scene through to the next one and continue the ruse that I was pulling off. Mm. And that's the fun of undercover work. You're acting, plain and simple. For you, what's, what's, what's the real lesson that a Black Klansman? What's the, what's the takeaway that we should really get out of this? The real lesson is uh, there are evil forces out there that want to uh, reverse uh, time. And again, go back to a time when people of color were subservient to whites in general. Uh, we are living in that time right now. And the biggest threat that we have right now is that the main man that's pushing all this is the one that's at the head of government. And uh, we, can't, we can't sleep on that. We have to be wary of, uh, of these forces around us and don't sleep on it because if you do, they'll creep up and they will be the ones to overcome. I, have a I do have a question. When you talked about uh, maybe the 1% or 2% of, uh, of, of uh, policemen that are uh, that are racist or that are performing in a certain way are part of their community. Do we have to change the community in order to change them? No, no. Police officers need to live up to the oath that they took. We all know what that oath is. It was to uphold the Constitution, the laws of the Constitution, both state and uh, federal. And simply live up to the integrity that is inherent within all of us and uh, uh, be honest in our exercising of uh, the law when we deal with citizens, no matter who those citizens are. When you get an out of control officer who violates uh, his oath and abuses his constitutional authority, you have somebody that's lost his way. And that's a dangerous person because we're the only profession where they give us permission to kill. So we need to be willing to uh, enforce the law fairly. We need to recognize the integrity of our, our oath, of our badge, our uniform. We need to uh, respect the people who we are uh, pledged to, uh, we have pledged to serve and protect. And uh, we need to be willing to uh, drop the uh, blue wall of silence when it does go into effect and to identify the, uh, the bad apples and kick them out of the barrel. Want a great way to help a worthy organization and educate children about the civil rights movement? Visit our foundation, the Joan Trumpower Mulholland Foundation at the jtmfoundation.org. That's the jtmfoundation.org. We are a 501c3 established to help end racism through education. A $5 monthly recurring donation will provide curriculum for 30 students. As my mother used to say, I can't do everything, but I can do something, because doing nothing is not an option. If you have wanted to help in this cause, but didn't know how, now you can. The Joan Trumpower Mulholland Foundation at the jtmfoundation.org.
So now, what uh, what can we as citizens do um, in support of that? And you know, what 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 is what is our role when working with the you know with the police departments and so forth as citizens? I mean, without the rhetoric of you know, well, I pay taxes, I pay your you know, I pay your income, and that sort of nonsense. That doesn't get anyone anywhere. Well, the first thing you have to do is recognize that not all cops are bad. I was called a bad cop back in my day because for no other reason, I was a black man wearing a uniform and a badge. Right. And I had fellow blacks in the community of Colorado Springs who uh, called me a pig on sight. For no other reason than I was a cop. I even tried to recruit blacks to join the department. And I would give them the spiel about why this is a good profession to, to start a career in and the benefits after the end of 20 years, the benefits that you have uh, for your life and so forth. And the response I got was always the same. Man, I don't want to be no pig. And I'd ask them, what are you doing right now with your life? Nothing. I get high, come and go as I please and get high when I please. I said, so you're going to get high your whole life? When are you going to settle down and do something constructive with your life? I said, man, I couldn't become a pig. I can't snitch on my own people. I wouldn't do that. And yet they were looking for jobs. I have, no, I have no sympathy for anyone like that. They're just stupid. Be they black, be they white, whatever. They're just stupid. There's no excuse for that. You know, and ignorance breeds more ignorance, and these were ignorant fools. So stop recognizing or stop attempting to label all cops as bad. Not all cops are bad. If you're one of these people that goes around saying all cops are bad, for a black man, that's like all whites saying all blacks are niggers. It ain't true. It ain't true. Don't do it. Recognize the bad when you see it, but recognize there's also some good out there and acknowledge that when you come across it. And when you do find the bad, do everything you could to get that bad out. They don't deserve to, to carry a badge and a gun. And they de definitely don't need to uh, desecrate that uniform. But when you have that blue wall of silence, thin blue line, whatever the you know term they use is, there's that sort of that mentality of the of, of the us versus them, the, the you know the cops against the community, use um, that appearance, and so you go and talk to uh, you know to the to the chief of police and so forth, saying hey we got the problem with these particular officers here, and they're like well yeah we'll take care of that on our own and this sort of stuff. And, you know nothing ever happens, and so it's like it's like well wait a second you know you're you're here to serve the community and you're not responding to the needs of the community in that respect, so. Yeah, there's a lot of truth to that. We don't like it when civilians, who I don't care if they are citizens of the community that we, we serve, we don't like it when civilians come in and are very critical of, of us and the job that we do. Uh, one reason we don't like that is because unless you've been a cop, you can't imagine what we have to go through. Now, it may sound like I'm making an excuse for them, and to a certain extent I am. But I'm trying to put you in the mind, mindset of what cops think, okay? We have to deal with certain realities by being cops, certain realities of the street, and unless you have experienced that from our perspective, you don't really know what's going on. And uh, to suddenly rain criticism on us, we tend to find offensive. And I've always said, before you criticize me, Come work with me. Come spend a night with me. 
come spend a month with me or whatever and see the things that I see, see what I have to deal with on a regular basis, see the, the domestic violence that I have to respond to and have to keep a husband and his wife or a boyfriend, girlfriend separated in order to find a common ground so that they can continue to peacefully coexist and not kill each other. See right. what we go through in that before you pass judgment on me. So we don't like being criticized. We definitely don't like it when civilians are the ones passing judgment on us from the standpoint of a, a, a citizen's review board. There are some cities in this country where you have citizen review boards that actually uh, level the, uh, the punishment when the cop is found in violation. You know, um, we feel like we feel like the average citizen can't truly understand us because they haven't been in our shoes. So what what do we what do we do then? Right. In other words, like I know that all of my friends uh, who are black and and have talked to their sons or their daughters uh, about being pulled over by a police officer. I don't know which one I'm going to get. Now I've been lucky because most of the time when I get pulled over, it's my cop that I can respect and I can talk to. But I know that my my daughter has been pulled over. Uh, by a cop that has no business on anybody's police force. So if I can't tell the captain, or I can't tell the whoever it is, the sergeant, who do I talk to? How do I stop that? Well, you should be able to talk to the captain or the, the sergeant or whoever it may be. Uh, and if they are doing their job, they will give you the sympathetic ear. I might add, I may have been a cop, but I was dealt with in the same manner as you as a black yeah. man and any other black man out there. I so believe it's that. Not, it's not unusual. Uh, we all have that shared experience of being wrongfully uh, approached by, uh, by a, a rogue police officer. And I know even though I was a badge carrying, gun carrying member of that community, it was still very uncomfortable for me to have to put up with it. Right. But it's like I've told, uh, I used to have the talk with my two sons. And I told them back when they were, weren't acting stupid and were listening to me, I told them, when you're out there and you're approached by a cop, you do what that cop says, right. you bite your tongue, because out in the street is not the time to be getting in his face and challenging him. He right. has the upper hand, and he, you don't know whether you got somebody that's out of control or whether he's going to do the right thing. So basically, shut your mouth, deal with what he's dishing out, and come back on him later when you have the upper hand. But for so many kids who get caught up in a trick bag, it's because they don't know when to shut up and wait until the time is right for them to unleash their anger on that out-of-control cop. In the street, when he is approaching you from an official standpoint, it is not the time to do it. It's the wrong time to be right. Um, you know, it's, it's like you said, you'll save, save, you know, uh, save yourself for the battle. But... The same voice you also said that cops don't like to be, you know, the police departments don't like to be criticized by the citizens. And so we're talking about, we're not talking about just standard, standard stuff. We're talking about, you know, like, like you said, these few bad apples, but now you, you know, you can't go to the police force and say, hey, look, we're having some serious issues with this particular officer who routinely is doing this stuff. And you're seeing that the police department is really actually doing nothing about it because of that culture you talked about of not wanting to be a snitch and that, 
the perception becomes is that the police take care of themselves. But we're not, you know, there's oftentimes you're not seeing that take place. So there seems to be this sort of log jam and this, this disconnect of how to hold. I also said that you should also said that you should go and talk to somebody. And if that person is doing their job and doing it right, they will have an open mind and listen to your complaint and they will act appropriately on it. Right. That's an if. That's an if, though. Life is an if. Well, sure, sure, but so what? So, how do we, how do we as a society work to bridge that gap, so that when those ifs come up, that there there's a way to work through that, so that that so that the police don't feel the community is being confrontational. The you know the community doesn't think that the police is protecting themselves, because that's well, that's the, kind of where the, we're sitting. The, the first thing, no, the first thing you've got to do is be willing to step forward with your complaint. If you're one of these that's going to say, well, nothing's going to happen because they stick together, I'm sorry, but shame on you. Shame on you. You should be willing to step forward and voice your complaint and take it where you have to take it, push it to uh, where you have to push it in order to get resolution. If you're not going to do that, then don't complain. Don't complain. You deserve to be treated like the fool that you are. And that may sound harsh, but that's how I feel, and I've always felt that way. Unless you are willing, and I'll use the term, or unless you are willing to snitch this bad cop off, then how is anything ever going to come to light? Unless you are a member of the police department, and you're willing to, quote unquote, drop the blue wall of silence and tell your superiors what this fellow officer is doing that you know to be a violation, how can you expect to have a good, clean profession to continue to coexist in. So now, who's, now whose job is that to make sure that they're having this? I mean, because to drop that blue, that, that blue wall of silence for the police department to, like, as you were saying, uphold their, you know, the oath they take and so forth is because what, what's, what's the expression about the, um, the only thing a good cop hates more is a bad cop type of thing, you know? Bad cops make good cops look bad. That's very um, true. And so, but there's that wall of silence. So how do, how, how do we, how do we move beyond that so that the cops are, have a space where they feel that they can actually report, you know, that, Let me, uh, remember reporting, what I said reporting about, that oath in that constitution and such. Remember what I said about the police department being a microcosm of the community they serve? Mm-hmm. One of the things that was always frustrating to me and other officers back in the day and still exists is when we have evidence of a crime, we know what the crime is, we know who did it, but the victim is not willing to step forward because they don't want to be a snitch. So how do you expect me to solve your crime, whatever the crime is, how do you expect me to solve it when you're not gonna come forward and point out the person that did it so that I can take the appropriate action, give you some vindication? Mm -hmm. And when they tell me, well, that's your job, you figure it out, I'll be honest with you, my, my, my answer was always, excuse the language, but fuck you. Mm -hmm. If you are willing to step forward and take the appropriate action in order for me to solve your crime, then I have no sympathy for you. I will not feel shame because you refuse to do the right thing to help me in my cause. And if you say, throw it back in my face, well, that's your job, you figure it out. I'm telling you the first step towards figuring it out. And you're saying, basically, F you to me. Right. 
That works both ways. Mm -hmm. That works both ways. The police are wrong in a lot of instances. They're not totally wrong in some instances. Right. The community is not totally wrong in, in, in a lot of instances either. We have to learn to work together. So if you're if you're going to if you're going to criticize the cops for doing wrong, be willing to accept the fact that there are some people in the community that are equally as guilty from their perspective. And until they find a common ground to work through, nothing's going to happen. Right. I will be the first to condemn members of my profession when they're wrong and when they deserve to be wrong. And I tend to do so. If you monitor my Facebook uh, post, I call them out all the time. But at the same time, when I know them to be right in a certain situation, I will defend them to the death until you give me proof otherwise. And when you give me video proof, like the, in the George Floyd case, I had no hesitation about calling that officer out for what he was, murderer, okay? And that's as it should be, and it works both ways. Works both ways. It's, yeah, it's, 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 I mean, it's a complex issue. I mean, in the, in the end of the day, what, we are, what we're looking at is, is, is we are, we're all people. And, uh, you know, like you said, you know, they're coming from, you know, police officers come from a community. And, uh, and we, we kind of ignore the fact that police officers aren't, aren't you know, superhuman robots or something. They're actually just, just like the rest of us that have to deal with extra levels of stress and everything else because of their, because of their profession. Uh, Very true. But bringing in together that, that working together from a community standpoint and from a police department standpoint to, to, you know, to, to affect that change. I'm, I'm glad we were able to, you know, have part of that conversation. I mean, it wasn't the point of the conversation, but, uh, you know, but that's all right. That's all right. That's where these, these things kind of go a little bit, but uh, yeah, it, it, it's, I mean, it's, you, you, you have a fascinating background because of the work that you had to do and diving into the heart of the clan uh, and, and, and having to, to go up against the hate that they embody. Uh, I mean, what, 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 what people don't realize is that I was having fun during that entire investigation. It was, it was fun. Uh, not many people get a chance to go nose-to-nose, face-to-face with a white supremacist. Not many Blacks get to go nose-to-nose, face-to-face with a white supremacist group, and especially the leader of that group, and make a complete and total ass out of it. And uh, essentially, that's what I did. I had a lot of fun, and 40, 41 years later, 42 years later, I'm still laughing at it. <laughs> Any regrets from that time in regards of, you know, I wish I could have in respect to what was going on with the Klan? Yeah, I regret the fact that we couldn't get them in a felony complaint to where we could have put uh, some of those people away for uh, anywhere from uh, five to ten years. Yeah. Hmm. I regret that uh, very much. Um, but outside of that, no. We did the job to the best of our ability, uh, and we accomplished uh more than we imagined when we started that investigation. Uh, gotta, gotta remember, there was no plan. Uh, this happened as a, as a fluke, and we took it as far as we could, and uh, that was a lot of fun. Mm. That was a lot of fun. Like you said, you know, they, uh, I mean, they, the good thing is that they weren't that smart. I mean, the bad thing is they're pretty dangerous. And that's a, yeah. that's a, yeah. a lethal cocktail, unfortunately, in a lot of situations. Very true, very true. But that's the reality of a white supremacist. 
white supremacists, and that's the reality of uh, extremists, no matter what stripe they may be a part of. Right. And that's what we're seeing again today is this, this lack of critical thinking and so forth, you know, playing into the rhetoric that, that we're seeing coming out of uh, this administration. Yeah, we're, we're dealing with the ultimate extremists in uh, Donald Trump right now. And hopefully in November, um, Joe Biden will put an end to it. Mm. Guess who I'm voting for? <laughs> <laughs> That's all right. I think, I, think you, I think we're all with you. <laughs> well, good. I didn't let any secret out, Dan. <laughs> All right. Well, it's official endorsement from Ron Starr with uh, going for Joe Biden. All right. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Mr. Starr. We truly appreciate your time. My pleasure. I enjoyed talking to you, gentlemen. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. Thank you, okay. sir. Thank you, you. Thank you again for listening. Make sure you head to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash Loki Mulholland. Show a little love if you can and get access to even more content. Until next time. Don't be afraid to get uncomfortable.